Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. I am honored today to be in dialogue with Dr. Roni Mikhail Arielli. She is the Academic Director of the Oral History Division in the Institute for Contemporary Jewry at Hebrew University of Jerusalem. She is also a researcher, lecturer, and research fellow at the RAB Center for Holocaust Studies at Ben-Gurion University of the Negev. We are here today to discuss her new book, Remembering the Holocaust in a Racial State, Holocaust Memory in South Africa from Apartheid to Democracy, 1948 to 1994, published in Berlin by De Gruyter, 2022. Roni, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired your interest in this topic and inspired you to invest in this book? Yes, sure. So uh, I grew up in a a small town uh, called Carmiel in the north uh, part of Israel. Uh, And actually, I must say that uh, I have no direct connection to the Holocaust. Uh, So uh, both of my parents were born in Israel. Uh, My father's parents uh, were born in Romania and uh, made Aliyah to Israel uh, in 1947. Uh, They were actually deported to Cyprus, to the camps, the British camps. Uh, And then uh, after the release, uh, they uh, came back to Israel and established their family. And uh, from my mother's side, uh, my grandmother uh, was born in Libya. uh, And uh, my grandfather was born in Morocco. Uh, So both of them experienced uh, the uh, anti-Jewish legislation and the persecution uh, in some extent, uh, as many of of the Jews of of North Africa. Uh, But actually, it was never uh, an issue that was discussed or spoken by them. Um, uh, and, and so the Holocaust was not very present in my family history. Um, but of course I grew up in Israel as part of the Israeli, uh, um, national education system. Uh, I, uh, learned about the Holocaust at a very young age and, uh, I'm not sure if if it's because I had no direct connection to the Holocaust, but very, very soon I became obsessive with with the Holocaust, particularly with the diary of Anne Frank, which I read for the first time when I was 10 years old, too early. Uh, But um, uh, I remember at a very, very young age, uh, uh, I think it was when I was 12 or 13, uh, and I, I, for the first time, I studied in high school uh, about the history of the Holocaust. Uh, and even my history teacher saw that my interest is unusual. And I became a, a, a guide at my, a small museum that was established in my high school. Uh, 
uh, a museum that, that was dedicated to the history of the Holocaust. And uh, so I, I became at a very young age, very, very uh, interested in, in, in this particular history. Uh, and, and of course, when I was 16, uh, uh, this is actually a funny story. I had to choose uh, between going to uh, Poland uh, as part of this uh, school delegation and going to uh, a, a study tour in Morocco because I studied uh, Arabic as well. Uh, and my parents, of course, were not able to finance both. Uh, and I chose to go to Poland. Although my, uh, you know, my my family roots are definitely not in Poland, but in Morocco, uh, and I think it it testifies for for the this very very unique interest that I had, um, and so so from you know from the first moment that I remember myself, I was very interested about this history, uh, and then. Uh, uh, when I started my uh, uh, MA studies at the Ben-Gurion University, uh, I uh, actually focused my thesis on Holocaust memory in the struggle of asylum, African asylum seekers in, here in Israel. Uh, and uh, so I, I, I tried to see uh, uh, if and how Holocaust memory served uh, as a tool, uh, and an, of course, analogical tool in the struggle of asylum seekers in Israel in the early 2000s. I wrote this work, this thesis, in 2012, as you know, uh, everything happened related to uh, the African refugees that arrived in Israel. Uh, many were deported, some were held in, in, in Holot camp. Uh, uh, many, many very uh, uh, um, uh, excluding uh, uh, legislations uh, appeared. Uh, and this protest was something that I was very much involved in as an activist. And after submitting this work, I have decided that uh, it is simply too difficult for me as an Israeli to write about the Israeli society. Uh, and still, at that point, I had at that point I had no specific direction, and definitely didn't think about um, uh, South Africa as uh, a subject of study. But during that year, I, I had a pr the privilege of working as a teaching assistant in uh, uh, Professor Lynchler's course at the Ben Gurion University on the political history of South Africa. And, and also an interesting episode that happened at the end of that year of 2012 was that I have received the Bertie Labner Award for Social Justice on my activism on campus at BGU, at the Ben-Gurion University. And Bertie was a South African Jewish philanthropist and a member of the university's board of governors. Uh, so I met him and his family in this university dinner and uh, as I told his daughter, Sue, about my, my thesis, my MA thesis, she said, well, you know, it was so disturbing for me uh, to learn about the Holocaust in high school in South Africa during the apartheid years. And that was it. Uh, then and there, I, actually, I knew uh, what I would like to write about in my, in my PhD studies. 
And uh, of course, I was very, very naive to think that uh, it would be easier for me to write about South Africa uh, as an outsider compared to writing uh, as an Israeli on Israel. And uh, I can tell you now that I was very, very wrong. It was not easy. Uh, but but it happened. So I, I remember talking uh, to Professor Schler about this idea of investigating Holocaust memory in apartheid South Africa. And when I still didn't even have any notion about the, the Jewish community in South Africa, what happened there, how did this community was established even. And a month after talking to her, I received an email uh, connecting me to Professor Louise Bethlehem from the Hebrew University. And the rest is history, actually. I, I spent 2012, the entire year, between my master's and my PhD studies, reading and learning this field of South African history. Uh, and in October 2013, I started my journey uh, at the Hebrew University writing this uh, research study. What are the primary themes in this book? What message does your book convey? What story does your book tell? Can you summarize your book for us? Well, it's actually very, very uh, um, like an, an impossible mission to ask uh, an author to summarize his book, which is, you know, uh, his baby. Uh, but I'll try. Uh, I'll just say that. Um, so this book, Focuses, uh, focuses on Holocaust memory in apartheid South Africa. And, and I'm trying through this book uh, to speak about how the different gr racial groups in South Africa during the apartheid years perceived, per sorry, perceived, commemorated, remembered the Holocaust uh, in this very unique uh, um, um, environment of, 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 a, of a racial state. So uh, the first part of the book focuses on the Jewish community in South Africa and how uh, this Jewish community that was actually uh, established uh, uh, before the Holocaust uh, at the beginning of the 19th century with British Jews that, that arrived in South Africa and then uh, at the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century where Jews from Eastern Europe, primarily Lithuania arrived uh, and how this community that was just established and that, uh, uh, that had to cope with an atmosphere of pro-Nazi sympathizers and uh, and an anti-Semitic movement during the 30s and 40s, how did they perceive the Holocaust as it was happening? What did they do? Uh, and uh, I can tell you that during the war and of course after the war, uh, you can see through the book how I try to describe not only how the Jewish community uh, uh, coped with the Holocaust, remembered the Holocaust, uh, commemorated it, but also how uh, the community mediated the Holocaust to the uh, white minority in South Africa, particularly to the, the Afrikaner minority, but also to the British minority. Uh, uh, as 
as as a tool or as a way of of struggling against against local antisemitism so this is one part of the book uh and and the other part focuses on the non-white voices uh and i'm doing it with uh <clears throat> I'm, I'm trying to to actually explore the ways in which Holocaust memory, Holocaust legacies, Holocaust consequences uh, 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 were perceived uh, uh, by uh, uh, the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa and outside of South Africa. Uh, and I think that this part of the book was born out of despair, out of, of my first visit in South Africa in February 2014, where I arrived and I realized very soon that apartheid still exists in the archives. So as I went to, to different archives, to the National Archive, Archives, to the National Library, to of course to the Jewish Archive, but not only, I tried to, 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 to find not only the white voices regarding the Holocaust, I tried to 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 look for uh, the voices of the Indian, the um, uh, the color, the black communities in South Africa, and I couldn't find it anywhere. And I came back to Israel, and I remember telling myself, "Well, how is it going to end? Am I going to write a, a book about uh, the Jewish community in South Africa, or am I going to write a book about the the, the South African society?" Uh, and then uh, I read uh, an opening uh, paragraph in uh, in a very very important uh, publication of, of Professor Shirley Gilbert, who wrote uh, on the image of Anne Frank uh, in South Africa, and, and she she opened her article uh, talking about uh, anti-apartheid manifestations uh, of the Holocaust, uh, using Holocaust memory in their struggle. And also she mentioned very briefly how this Indian South African Ahmed Kaprada uh, uh, read the diary of Anne Frank on Robben Island and copied parts of it to his secret notebook. That was it. And then I started investigating more. I had a lead, I had to, I had something. Uh, and I went to, uh, I went back to South Africa that year, and I went to the Robben Island archives, uh, and I found, I located the seven notebooks, secret notebooks uh, of Ahmed Kaprada, who was an Indian Muslim South African activist at the uh, African National Congress, uh, and who copied 13 quotations from the diary of Anne Frank, into his notebooks. Actually, it was not a, a, a very rare act for him. He he held seven notebooks where he used to uh, uh, copy inspiring quotations from all kinds of books and newspapers. And so this was only part of, of, of his uh, project. Uh, but for me, this was of course the, the most important and interesting part because I realized that the diary somehow arrived on Robben Island. Uh, and, and then I started inve investigating more. And, and, and of course, this direction led me, to, led me to the other part of the book. 
uh, that focuses on the role of Holocaust memory in the anti-apartheid struggle. And again, I have to say, I, I can't say that, I, uh, that I'm representing here the entire anti-apartheid uh, movement. It's a huge movement. Uh, but I think that through the voices of Ahmed Kutrada, uh, Nelson Mandela, Govan Becky, Desmond Tutu, and other activists, I was able to give a taste of those voices uh, in the context of decolonization, uh, anti-colonialist struggles, and so on. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today? I think that the the thing that I that I would like the most uh, is for people to to understand that Holocaust memory uh, is is. The Holocaust was was a tragic event for the Jewish people, not only, but mostly for the Jewish people. But it happened in a colonial world. There are many other atrocities, uh, and that 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 actually, uh, you know, uh, intersect with the Holocaust uh, and with with the memory of the Holocaust. And I think that one of the things that I that I I try through this book uh, to to invoke is is that one need not to uh, be so afraid or reluctant from analogies. Uh, an analogy is never perfect. One event cannot be identical to another. But when you have similarities, and of course when you state the differences, an analogy can create a space for a space for solidarity, a space for 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 other sufferings uh, to 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 be pronounced. So I, I feel like this is the main uh, the main uh, thing the main message that I that I seek to convey in the book. I'm not sure that I'm very successful, but if I even invoke a discussion about this, about this analogical lexicon and about implication and human implication and how communities are implicated uh, uh, and need to address the context that they live in, I did. Uh, so for me, uh, you know, uh, if if I can get um people to think about this i did my uh my role for you know for for this book <laughs> at least you alluded to ahmed katrada early on can you contextualize him for our listeners can you tell us about the life and biography of katrada what were the seminal events in his life how did he become politically active where did he live what was his importance in the history of the African National Congress? Sure. So thank you. I think that's a, a great opportunity to 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 tell you about a, a very very important figure in the anti-apartheid struggle that I feel like didn't receive very much presence in South African uh, public history and and in colonial history as a whole. So Katrada. Uh, as I said, was a Muslim uh, Indian South African. He uh, grew up a, a, in uh, a, a small rural town 
uh, outside of, uh, of Johannesburg, uh, and his parents were were a, a religious Muslim. His father was a, a businessman. He owned a small shop. And at this small town that he lived in, uh, they had, uh, uh, and it was, of course, uh, during the war, the World War II, uh, there was a school for Afrikaners. There was a school for white. Uh, there, were school, uh, there was a school for uh, Black South Africans but there was no school for Indians. So he had to immigrate to Johannesburg at a very, very young age when he was only 11 years old. Uh, he immigrated alone. He lived uh, at his aunt's house. And that was the point at a very, very young age where he got exposed to politics. And uh, he, uh, when he was 12 years old, he enlisted to the Communist uh, Youth League in Johannesburg and started to be very, very active politically. Uh, it was uh, uh, 1940, so first, of course, against the war uh, because the Communist and the Soviet uh, Union was uh, at the time uh, aligned with the Nazis. Uh, under the the uh, Ribbentrop uh, Molotov Ribbentrop uh, uh, Pact, but then of course in June 1941, uh, uh, the reality changed, and he became uh, an advocate of 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 the war against the fascism and against Nazism, uh, and so he learned at a very very young age about the, 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 the Holocaust as it happened. He learned about Nazism, about uh, uh, anti-Semitism, uh, and, uh, but, but one need to understand that he learned it from uh, the lectures, the book clubs, uh, the uh, movies of, of the Communist Party. So it was a very particular narrative. So uh, that was uh, uh, the beginning. And then he became, of course, very, very uh, active in uh, the um, passive resistance uh, and campaign of the Indian South African Congress. Uh, so he was an activist uh, and, and What's very interesting was that as an activist, when uh, as a student uh, in 1951, he uh, was chosen to uh, be the head of a delegation uh, that will go to Eastern Europe, to East Berlin, to this festival for youth and students, uh, the Peace Festival for Youth and Students, which was also very communist, of course, uh, and uh, and he also received uh, a role as the manager of the Africa desk at the World Federation for Demo Democratic Youth at, in Budapest, in Hungary. So he moved to Europe in 1951. Luckily for him, he had a, a passport that he uh, received in 1947 before apartheid started, because after 1948, non-white uh, 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 citizens of, of, of uh, South Africa were not able to get a passport, but he had one. So he was able to travel. He uh, 
he went to 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 this East Berlin festival, and then uh, he had like uh, a period he spent in Poland in this uh, World Union of Student Conference, and then he had two weeks, and he chose for those two weeks to go to the Warsaw Ghetto. He went to the the monument, and then he also decided to go to Auschwitz. And so, uh, and, and, and in his memoir from 2004, he writes that Auschwitz was the experience that made him go back to South Africa and to, to the struggle against apartheid. Because in Auschwitz, he, he saw the consequences of racism in play. And as he went through the uh, uh, through the concentration camp, he he, he actually saw uh, uh, human bones uh, lay on the ground near the uh, the incinerators, and he decided to to take those bones with him back to South Africa in order for them to serve as a material display in his political speeches. And then he, he went back to South Africa and he uh, became very, very prominent youth leader um, and speaking to youth everywhere he can in South Africa. And the, of course, the secret police, the apartheid police uh, was uh, following him wherever he went. And, uh, uh, and, and then in uh, of course I'm jumping because it's it's not fair but but you know we we have a limited uh, uh, amount amount of time but when when in in the early 60s uh he was very very active in in the ANC the African uh, 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 National Congress uh he uh, was part of uh, what we know the as the Rivonia trial. Okay, this trial that took place in South Africa uh, between October '63 and uh, June 1964, uh, uh, and uh, of course we know that this trial led to the imprisonment of Nelson Mandela. But if we go a little bit back, uh, what happened was that. Uh, uh, um, a secret uh, uh, branch of of the the, um, the ANC uh, uh, was was positioned in Lilisley Farm uh, in in a suburb uh, outside of Johannesburg uh, called Vivonia, uh, where uh, leaders of the ANC, the anti-apartheid leaders, uh, were actually. Uh, um, meeting secretly uh, and, and at one of those meetings uh, the police raided uh, uh, the uh, the Lily farm uh, and of course arrested uh, the leaders of of this struggle among them uh, Walter Cicero, Govan Becky uh, and others and of course, uh, there were also uh, white and Jewish activists among them, uh, Arthur Goldreich, who was actually the one that uh, owned this uh, farm in Lilisleaf and uh, purchased it as uh, on behalf of the Communist Party uh, and lived there with his wife and children as a disguise. 
And then, uh, of course, uh, Dennis Goldberg and uh, Lionel Bernstein and uh, Bob Happel, but Ahmed Kadrada was among them. Nelson Mandela was arrested before, but was uh, trialed at Rivonia, at the Rivonia trials, uh, uh, trial, uh, like the other activists. And they were all, uh, uh, they all re received, uh, uh, um, uh, were sentenced to, to, to life imprisonment. Uh, the white members, leaders, uh, were held uh, in in uh, in prison for the white prisoners of apartheid, and and the black or the non-white uh, the non-white uh, prisoners uh, were sent to Robben Island. So and then uh, of course uh, the diary of Anne Frank enters, uh, where somehow it was smuggled during the sixties. Uh, onto Robben Island. Robben Island is is actually an island, so it's it's very far far from everywhere. It's it's, it's close to Cape Town, but uh, uh, to smuggle things onto Robben Island was a challenge. So it's uh, of course very interesting to to try to find out how the diary arrived there. But it was read by many of the prisoners, particularly the ones that were held in section B, the leaders section, uh, uh, but not only. What does Ahmed Kachrada specifically write and say about the diary of Anne Frank? Can you provide some detail about his specific references to the diary of Anne Frank? What did the diary of Anne Frank mean to him what parallels did he perceive between his struggle with loneliness during his incarceration and Anne Frank's struggle with loneliness during her hideouts? Can you explain some of the interconnections that Katrada perceived between himself and Anne Frank? I can try, but I, I must say uh, what was unique with Ahmed Katrada was that he actually quoted directly from the diary, but he didn't write a Dear Kitty diary. He didn't reflect on, on his selection. So he actually left me the job of interpreting why he chose this um, quote and not that one. Uh, but I think that his selection of, of the, the particular 13 uh, quotation was, was quite clear. Uh, and if I may, I can I can give you one example, one sure. short one. Uh, sure. So he he actually chose one of the first quotations was from uh, uh, February 12, 1944, when Anne Frank wrote, and I'll quote, the sun is shining, the sky is the deep blue. There is a lovely breeze and I'm longing, so longing for everything, to talk, for freedom, for friends, to be alone, end of quote. So when you read it, of course, uh, and you you try to think, why would he uh, actually uh, uh, choose this particular uh, uh, quotation when he is, uh, you know, uh, sitting in a cell in prison, uh, and you read his memoir? And you see how he mentions uh, his own loneliness and his own longing. And he said, 
you know, uh, I, I, I'll quote only parts of it, but he said, uh, nor could I possibly have realized that it would be two decades before I would see a child again, or that we would have to adapt to living with grown men in condi conditions where I could never see the stars in the night sky. So you can see that, you know, that this, this this part reflects on the identification that I assume that Catrada had with the conditions that Frank that Anne Frank uh, had experienced in hiding, uh, trying to not to acquit but but to 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 point to similarities between Jewish suffering during the Holocaust and. Uh, the suffering of Indian black and uh, blacks and and the colored under the apartheid regime. So I I think that we have two particular points of intersection or inspiration or similarities that Katrada uh, uh, addresses in his selection. One is 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 uh, to you know, remaining optimistic under the worst conditions uh, and trying to, to, to stay positive. That, of course, we all know that in the diary of Anne Frank, this is a very uh, distinct message. But the other is, I think, Anne Frank's uh, reflections on antisemitism, which Katrada, uh, I think, uh, I presume, chose as an, as an analogy between antisemitism and other forms of racism, such as the racism that he experiences in South Africa during the apartheid years. Um, I, I think that what is the most interesting thing and what I can tell you about Ahmed Katrada and the ways in which he uh, uh, perceived the 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 Anne Frank diary, or or uh, uh, what he said. Uh, I think that that that, and of course, this is in retrospect. Uh, when I interviewed him, and also before I interviewed him, uh, in in this introduction to a film uh, called um, A Simple Freedom. Katrada uh, stresses that, uh, uh, you know, that, that he read the diary of Anne Frank and that uh, while her experiences were quite different from his own and her situation was very different, there were similarities. And he said, we must stress that the condition under which Anne Frank, the little child lived was much, much worse than ours, but yet you can't escape the similarities. And I think that, you know, borrowing from or using Michael Rothberg's uh, model of the multidirectional memory is very productive here because you can see that Katrada acknowledges the differences between the Holocaust and apartheid. He doesn't equate it like as, as, as a, an identical uh, event uh, and 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 yet he points to similarities and he can point to similarities because 
first of all, he points to the, he, he addresses the differences. Um, I hope that I was able to answer. What was it personally like for you to meet Ahmed Katrada? What did he say to you? What did it mean for him to speak to you? What emotions did he feel in talking to you? What did you feel when you were talking to him? Can you elaborate on your experience personally communicating with Katrada? Yes, I was very, very fortunate, I must say. So I'll, I'll go a, a little bit. Uh, uh, so I'll start before the meeting. How did I even get this interview? So it was very, very hard. Um, what happened was when, when in 2000, the end of 2014, when I, uh, uh, when I learned about Katrada and about the reading of the diary of Van Frank of Robben Island, I started turning to the Ahmed Katrada Foundation, trying to, to, to get an interview with him. And I didn't get any response at first. And then uh, in 2016, I ran into a, a, a Facebook page of the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Center, uh, stating that they had a special guest, Ahmed Katrada, uh, marking the Refugees Day. And I immediately turned to uh, Tali Nates, the director of the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Center, and I told her, well, Tali, I really need to, to, to have some kind of a, con a direct contact to, to, South, to, to Ahmed Katrada. And I think uh, it took her two days. I received an email from the director of the foundation who uh, uh, who actually uh, uh, was very keen to 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 provide me with an interview with Ahmed Katrada himself, and the interview was scheduled to August uh, 11, uh, 2016. It was a historical moment for me. That's why I I actually really remember this date. It was Friday. Uh, I arrived in South Africa 10 days earlier with my son, Ori, who was one year old. And uh, I, we arrived for two months. So we rented an apartment in Johannesburg. Uh, I found a, a Jewish daycare for him. I put him in a daycare and I went to, to Ahmed Katrada's flat in Johannesburg. I was very, very excited. Uh, and he actually didn't really understand why, why an Israeli researcher would like to speak to him. Why is he so interesting? Uh, a very humble man, a very humoristic man, a very positive man. And to think that after everything he went through, I, I'm not sure that I mentioned it, but Ahmed Katrada was imprisoned since uh, uh, 1964, and he was released in 1989, after his 60th birthday. Never had children of his own. Uh, and so, and, and still was very positive, very, you know, he, his smile lighted the room. So for me, it was very interesting to meet him. Ahmed Katrada, uh, until uh, his last days, uh, was very active in the struggle of the Palestinian people. Uh, and, uh, and so, of course, naturally, 
when I, as an Israeli researcher, arrived, we also spoke about, about uh, uh, the Palestinian struggle uh, for recognition, for a state, uh, and, and only after we spoke about this part, we started the interview. Uh, and it was three hours interview. We could kept on, on, on and on. Uh, it was very, very, uh, a very interesting conversation where I actually got an opportunity that not many historians get. Not only that I had the, the, the you know, the, the secret notebooks where he quoted from the diary. Now I had this living source. I could ask him, why did he choose this and that? Uh, uh, quotations. So for me, it was very useful. But I think what was the most useful thing for me as a historian that yeah. he told me, uh, he actually told me that he was, uh, um, yeah. that he kept, uh, he kept all the, the, the speeches, the political speeches that he made during the 50s. And uh, that he needs to get them from Linasia, the township in Soweto where, where his foundation is located, uh, but that he had it. And then, uh, of course, unfortunately, six months later, he passed away. Uh, but his foundation was very generous to give me, to provide me with an open access to his private archives in Linasia. When I actually lo located those uh, transcriptions of his political speeches in the secret police reports. As I said, the secret police, the apartheid police followed him wherever he went in the 50s. Yeah. And they actually copied uh, and, and, and recorded everything that he, uh, that he uh, said uh, in the political conventions. So uh, so that was a very, very interesting thing. Uh, the other thing uh, that was actually very, very interesting personally for me was that, as I said, he never had children. And he told me that the, the thing that he missed the most was to see children. He also uh, told me that uh, when he was uh, moved, uh, moved to the Palsmore Maximum Security Prison in the 80s with Mandela, uh, his, uh, his lawyer came uh, to speak to him. Uh, and, um, and then uh, and he brought his, his daughter. And he was so excited to see, uh, you know, the daughter of the lawyer uh and because he really missed a lot of a lot of uh, you know the, the thing that he missed the most was was children and then he also was very excited to hear that uh, that my son was here with me in johannesburg and he insisted on meeting him and three days later we came in one afternoon to visit him again and i have this historical picture of ori my older son in ahmed katwada's lap and just another anecdote for, you know, to share how humoristic he was. When we finished the interview, he said, well, we must take a, a photo. And he asked his assistant to, to, to photograph us. Uh, and as we stood, you know, posing to the camera, he said, look, 
it's just like that, pointing to uh, a common uh, photograph of him and Nelson Mandela. Uh, so he was a very, very uh, optimistic, humoristic person. Uh, and for me, uh, this interview, not only that, of course, as a historian, it, wa it was a milestone. It was also a, a way of connecting to the subject of my study. Uh, that not many are alive. So uh, I think it's priceless. Can you tell us about the police raid on Lily's Leaf Farm, which you alluded to earlier on, which occurred on July 11th, 1963? What specifically happened? Can you tell us about what particularly transpired? Yeah, I can try. Uh, so Lilysleaf Farm, as I said, it, it's located in northern Johannesburg, uh, and it was a, some kind of a safe house for the uh, African National Congress uh, activists in the sixties. So, uh, as I'm not sure if 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 all of our listeners know, but in 1950, uh, the apartheid government. Uh, um, established the, the Suppression of Communism Act. Uh, and, and so the, the, the Communist Party uh, was outlawed. Uh, and then uh, this act was used to suppress all uh, opposition to the government, to apartheid, actually. Uh, uh, so at, at that point, uh, you could see how opposition to apartheid that, that became illegal had to go underground. Uh, and of course, a, a decade later, uh, the African National Congress was also outlawed. So, so activists inside of South Africa had to find safe houses to go underground. And this was one of, of, of those, uh, uh, those safe houses that, that were uh, used uh, by uh, the leaders of the ANC. And um, as I said, the property of Lily's Leaf House was purchased by Arthur Goldreich and by Harold Wolpe, uh, two activists uh, that, 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 and the purpose was to, use, to, to, to create these headquarters for the underground South African Communist Party. Uh, and uh, and and to to actually have a safe house for Nelson Mandela, um, and on eleven uh, July nineteen sixty three, the security police uh, of the apartheid regime raided the farm, and they arrested nineteen members of the underground uh, leaders of the anti-apartheid struggle in uh, or anti-apartheid movement in. South Africa, um, and uh, and and of course, uh, they uh, the so that's that's actually the 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 story the main story of the Lilsley Farm. Um, yeah, I think that I uh, I touched uh, upon all of it. I just want to stress that that Nelson Mandela himself was not in Lilith's Leaf uh, at the time of the raid, the police raid. He was already in custody uh, of the police, but still at the Rivonia trial, he was tried uh, together with the other 19 underground activists. To listeners who are not familiar or who might not have background, 
Can you explain what was the Rivonia trial? Can you tell the story of what occurred and what its consequences were? So the Rivonia trial was, I think, one of the uh, main pillars of the anti-apartheid struggle inside of South Africa. Uh, as I said, uh, uh, the, the trialists, the, the, the defendants were uh, activists against apartheid. They were arrested uh, by the police. And uh, uh, and eventually, I think that that the, the fact that the, the Rivonia trial was is so prominent in in South African history uh, had to do with the fact that it led to the imprisonment of Nelson Mandela, and I think the entire uh, um, head or leader, the the main leaders of the anti-apartheid struggle. Um, so uh, this is a very formative event uh, for for for, uh, for for many South Africans. Uh, I think that the the, the moment uh, that the prisoners or the the defendants uh, they, that they remember the most, and even if you ask South Africans who followed uh, uh, the the trial, the proceedings of the trial. Uh, I think that that uh, as we know, uh, everyone were expecting uh, a death penalty sentence, and uh, therefore, when the when when the the world the word life, and I'm I'm referring to life imprisonment, yes, it yes. was heard by the judges. It was quite a relief for the defendants and for the audience uh, and for many, many South Africans that were against apartheid. Um, yeah, so in a nutshell, did, that, sorry. What does, your, what does your book teach us about collective memory? I think that it, it demonstrates that collective memory is very, very central to, to, to all kinds of communities, but particularly to minority communities. Uh, and that all in all, collective memories, traumatic collective memories, work the same. There is this fixed mechanism of, 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 of creation of, of collectiveness of, or of community identity that needs this vehicle of collective memory in order to, to create this glue, to create this, this, this togetherness to, to, and, and at the same time to create the other, of course. Uh, and, and I think that as, uh, you know, when I wrote this research, uh, I tried very, very carefully to explore the collective memories that existed in South Africa during the apartheid years, not only uh, for Jews, not only the Holocaust. Although I think what's very, very interesting to see is how Holocaust memory uh, during the, the, the formative period of transition from apartheid to democracy actually becomes a, a national collective memory. Um, in a country that, you know, one one can say had no direct connection to the Holocaust, uh, 
but still, if we, if we focus on the period of apartheid, I try to see how the different groups in South Africa addresses their own collectiveness or collective memories, traumatic collective memories. And I think it came out very strongly throughout the book to see how, how the South African society uh, during the apartheid years was a society of a struggle, a struggle between narratives, uh, a struggle for recognition of suffering and hierarchy of suffering. So we see, uh, um, uh, for one example, uh, one can see during the first decade of, of apartheid, the ways in which the Jewish community adopts uh, this mnemonic uh, um, uh, or, or remembrance practice uh, uh, through creating monuments that were actually not very common outside of, of Europe uh, in the Jewish world. Uh, of course, Israel is an exception here. Uh, but it was very common uh, uh, as a monumental act for the Afrikaner minority, actually uh, 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 in their processes of remembrance of their own traumatic past of the South African war uh, and of the Great Trek uh, and other nationalistic uh, events uh, that relates to Afrikaner nationalism. Uh, so I think that throughout the book, I try to, to, to explore the Holocaust as a collective memory of the Jewish community, uh, but also to see how the reactions of non-Jewish people in South Africa to this memory or to this event are very much related to their own collective memories and traumatic experiences and histories. Can you comment on the history of South African Jews in the 19th century and early 20th century? Where did they live? How did they live? Can you tell us about what we should know about their history um, a century ago, a century plus ago? Sure. So I think this is a very important question, and I think it's also a, a direction of study that was not explored enough. If you ask, how did the ordinary Jews, South African Jews, lived in South Africa? This is something that was not investigated enough, on my opinion. But I can tell you from my own study uh, that... As I said, the Jewish community was established by Jews who arrived in South Africa in the early 19th century and the late 19th century, mainly from Lithuania, Eastern European Jews. Uh, uh, but before they arrived, there was a minority of, of immigrants from Britain. And they established the community, uh, the community institutions, the Zionist Federation, as well as the uh, the South African Jewish Board of Deputies that play a central role in my study because I tried to to ab observe at the official communal efforts to remember the Holocaust, and that's why when when I speak to to South African Jews who lived throughout the apartheid years, 
many of them would say, well, I do not remember the Holocaust being so present in my life as a South African Jew during the apartheid years. And that, that you know, subjectively, that may be true for him, uh, but I try to bring uh, the, this official communal history to the fore. Uh, white. And as white, uh, they, uh, their, their accommodation to the racial reality in South Africa that actually started way before the apartheid regime was established in 1948. This was a segregationist or, or a racial society even before 1948. So I think that 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 uh, one one very interesting thing was that as the Jews were white, uh, uh, they. They, they were superior to, to the communities that were defined as non-white uh, by the Union of South Africa or by the apartheid regime, of course, later. Uh, and what I, I think is important to stress that, that, that the Jews were very well integrated economically, many of them, uh, and uh, and and therefore, I think that that you know they were very successful, uh, and 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 I and I think that that it's it's hard to imagine the life of Jews uh, during the the twenty the, the early twentieth century, uh, uh, and and without actually including. Uh, anti-Semitism in, into it, uh, but uh, those immigrants that we know from the the, the huge wave of, of Jewish immigration from Eastern Europe that arrived in the the, the U.S. and other places. Uh, so so uh, some of them arrived in South Africa. They were well integrated economically. Most of them. Uh, and 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 the fact was that you know the unskilled jobs and the ma manual labor were undertaken almost exclusively by by the the blacks the the, the Indian the, the colored communities. So of course Jewish immigrants enjoyed uh, uh, enjoyed this this uh, economic mobility that uh, was preserved to the white minority. Uh, but I think that that another thing that that one needs to say is that because many of the Jewish Jews of the member of the Jewish community arrived from Lithuania, they brought with them an ideological baggage that was much more much more socialist than Jewish. So uh, uh, many of them were, were were communist activists or socialist activists were Bundists. Uh, and therefore, it is not surprising that that, that in the early uh, 1920s, uh, the Communist Party of South Africa was established by, uh, you know, the, the, the organizations that led to the, the formation of this party were, many of them were Jewish so, uh, societies of, of, of socialists from Cape Town, from Johannesburg and other places. Uh, so on the one hand, you can see uh, how, how, how the, the, the Jewish immigrants were able to, to, to economically enjoy the, the mobility of the white 
of the wise. On the other hand, you can definitely see how they bring their own baggage of socialism and 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 uh, you know this colored blind uh, uh, blind uh, ideology. Uh, again, not all of them, but but definitely it was prominent. Um, and 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 another thing that I want to add to this matrix is is of course that the South African society was not very welcoming for those Jewish immigrants. So the, and and the Jewish community that was already there in South Af in South Africa was also not very welcoming because they were afraid that that if if many more Jews will come. There, there will be another racial issue in South Africa to deal with. Uh, so you can see how 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 anti-Semitism or this, the perception of Jews as unassimilable, as non-European, particularly of course the Jews that arrived from Eastern Europe, uh, um, and how this discourse uh, actually becomes a, a discourse of the mainstream politics in South Africa in the 30s, uh, creates the anxieties of this community that on the one hand is very well integrated, uh, on the other hand, well, are we white? Are we not white? We come from Eastern Europe and you know, while the, the many immigration laws do not specify uh, uh, Jews as, an, uh, as a subject of, of exclusion, they do specify Yiddish as a non-European language, therefore excluding the Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe. And what about the Jews that, that, that already in South Africa and speak Yiddish? So it created this anxiety that was, of course, intensified, sorry, intensified during uh, uh, the 30s and 40s uh, as the Holocaust was happening. Uh, and this anxiety, in some uh, you know levels, stayed with this community during the apartheid years. <coughs> what were the interconnections between anti-alienism and anti-Semitism in South Africa before, during, and after World War II? So, this is also um, a challenging question. Anti-Semitism in South Africa has very, very uh, uh, um, aging sources. So, it didn't start with the Nazis. It didn't start with, with this pro-Nazi sentiment. It started way before, and Professor Milton Shine wrote about it extensively. Uh, in his various publications and books on anti-Semitism in South Africa. Um, I think that uh, what's unique, anti-Semitism was always there. It had this agent roots. And then I think that one can say that in the 30s, with the emergence of pro-Nazi movements, even before the war, yeah, when, when, when mm. we see... Suddenly, we see uh, uh, national socialist branches inside of South Africa. We see uh, Nazi prop propaganda uh, in Afrikaans directed to Afrikaners. Uh, we see mainstream politicians 
mainly from right-wing Afrikaner, but, but not only right-wing. Uh, we see many of them speaking openly on anti-Semitism, on the Jewish question, on the Jewish race, on the ways in which the Jews and the, 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 the further allowing uh, Jewish immigration will risk this country that is already so complicated with the other races uh, and, and this, this, uh, this call to prevent creating a Jewish question in South Africa. Um, uh, so, uh, and, and it's this anti-alineation uh, 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 is, is interesting because, you know, the, 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 the main act, uh, immigration act that the United Party in South Africa established before apartheid in 1937, Following the arriving of uh, of around six thousand Jewish refugees from Germany to South Africa, so this is German refugees. One cannot say that they are Eastern European and not white. Okay, and there and this law, the nineteen thirty seven law, uh, which was titled Aliens Bill, was aimed particularly to preventing other Jewish refugees from Germany to arrive in South Africa. Uh, and, and, and this bill, I think, uh, uh, um, of course, as I said, this bill uh, excluded the Yiddish language um, from the list of European languages and therefore uh, you know, claimed that the, the Jews are not assimilable. But, but the, the fact was that uh, there was not a lot of a, a lot of dif difference between the two uh, notions: anti-Semitism and anti-alienism. Uh, uh, so, yeah, alienism. So, so, so I think that in many ways, if you explore the the, the earlier manifestations or or immigration acts, many of them aimed at preventing. Uh, Asian immigration, uh, immigration from Asia and particularly from India. Uh, uh, and we know, of course, that the Indians arrived, arrived in South Africa because the government brought them as a replacement for the uh, enslaved people. So when slavery became illegal, they brought the Indian to, to be the cheap labor uh for the task so and and then they had to 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 prevent it so of course they were the main tar target uh, and 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 you know a lot of uh people perceived uh the indian in africa as the, as the jews of africa which is interesting because they were the, the the first to be targeted after the africans uh so i see a lot of connections I think that one, uh, uh, th th those connections stop in 1948 because not, not that anti-Semitism disappears, not at all. I think that I demonstrate throughout the book how anti-Semitism, like uh, anti-Semitic manifestations stay in South Africa, stay present, but still, but, but they, they are in the margins. They are not in the mainstream, they are not legitimate uh, uh, by the apartheid regime. Uh, so, so, and you see how uh, the struggle against anti-Semitism 
by the apartheid government is part of uh, the, the process of, of whitening the Jews. We need the Jews. The Jews are white. We need them as part of the, our minority because we are a minority. So we need to prevent anti-Semitism. So this is one thing. And of course, it, it also serves as a way of investigating uh, or sorry, investing in, in Israel-South African relations uh, from the 70s onward. Um, yeah, so, but, but it's quite different. I think there is a moment in the 30s and 40s that antisemitism become a mainstream phenomenon. Uh, and, and then it's it's not okay to be anti-Semitic after 1945. Uh, not if, you can be racist, but not towards Jews. Uh, so you can see uh, Holocaust denial, you can see some anti-Semitic manifestations, very classic ones, like, you know, pig's heads outside synagogues and stuff like that. But it's it's in the margins. How did South Africa respond to the Holocaust? How did South African Jews respond to the Holocaust? How did South African Jews and non-Jews respond to the events in Europe between 1939 and 1945? So uh, South Africa responded to the Holocaust in various ways. Um, as it happened, uh, uh, in September 1939, uh, one very important uh, fact was that South Africa uh, joined the, the war against Nazism. Uh, and this was a, a, a very critical moment in, in South African history uh, as the South African United government's decision to, to enter the war with Britain uh, was perceived as a pro-British uh, action or decision. And of course it was uh, uh, it was not accepted by many of the of the Afrikaners, particularly those who were pro-Nazi and wished to keep the country neutral uh, and and not to 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 go against South Africa. Um, uh, so the Parliament uh, voted uh, in favor of of Jan Smuts. Uh, uh, you know, the uh, uh, decision to to join uh, Britain uh, in the war against Nazism, uh, and and so it was clear that Smuts had this uh, anti-Nazi stance, and he was actually very uh, a, a, a stance supporter of Zionism. He was uh, one of the contributors to the Balfour uh, Declaration, and uh, so. Of course, he was uh, uh, he was not pro-Nazi in any way, um, but still, uh, I think that uh, uh, that the main mainstream uh, Afrikaners were against the war, were against the, the the position that the South African government took in the war. As for the Jewish community, I think that's really, really interesting and 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 quite similar to to American Jews during the war. Uh, they were, of course, many of them arrived like American uh, Jews arrived in the in 19th century and early 20th century from Eastern Europe, 
left a lot of uh, family members behind, those family members died during the Holocaust, most of them. Uh, and, and of course, during those years, we, we saw many reactions, various reactions of Jews trying to bring their relatives from Europe to South Africa, unsuccessfully, of course. Um, uh, many, many feared that uh, the, the, the developments in Europe will actually create an advance of, of Nazism into South Africa. Uh, and uh, this situation drove those, this very, very small community, one should say, uh, which is located very far from, from, from the event of the Holocaust to, uh, to actually uh, take an active part in the battlefield. So we have uh, uh, many, many Jews uh, enlisting to, to the British army, to the South African army, uh, uh, and this uh, uh, and the Jewish community of uh, of course advocating for the uh, recruitment of, of of Jews to 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 the army uh, and to take part of of the war um, and also uh, at the home front you could see how the South African Jewish Board of Deputies and of course the Zionist Federation. Uh, in a very early stage, I think from 1937 onward, start even before the war started, you could see a, a, a lot of efforts in uh, establishing funds uh, and fundraisers uh, from the community in order to help refugees in Europe, from Europe, in other places, of course, uh, uh, encouraging many refugees to to move to to Israel to the, the Israel to Eretz Israel to Palestine, uh, and so and so we see many appeals that comes from the Jewish community in South Africa uh, that aim at helping uh, the, the the Jews in Germany in Austria uh, and so on. And when the war st uh, uh, starts. We can also see how, as I said, in 1937, there, were, there, there is the immigration quota that that uh, uh, that prevents Jewish refugees from entering South Africa. And while we see that that the Jewish community tries to to convince the government to open its gates unsuccessfully, uh, at the same time they realize that many of those Jews that are rejected from South Africa arrive in other places in the Southern Hemisphere. So they try to create special committees to help those Jews that arrive in Rhodesia and in Kenya and in Mauritius and other places uh, and, and, and to provide them with kosher food, with you know, uh, religious items, with books, with money, uh, whatever they can in order to help uh, those refugees. So I think that summarizes the main efforts of the, the community itself. If you look at the South African society, and, and in, in many parts of my book, I'm leaning uh, on, on, on press items, press uh, articles, uh, in order to sense the discourse, the public discourse. Uh, so uh, you see that definitely the Holocaust was very present 
in the public discourse in the British and Afrikaner press. Uh, you, you can see how from uh, December 1942 reports on the Nazi atrocities, on the, the, uh, the, the um, um, uh, cold-blooded annihilation of, of the Jews of Europe, uh, the, the, the gas chambers, this is all there from 1942 onwards. So uh, uh, you cannot uh, speak about a society that that didn't know anything or, or was not uh, engaging with the, the Nazi barbarism or the Nazi atrocities in Europe. Uh, uh, but I think that the main uh, main, main uh, acts, active acts, were were provided by the Jewish community itself. Can you tell us about Afrikaner South African responses to the kidnapping of Adolf Eichmann by Israel and to his trial in Israel? Yes. So this is a very, very interesting period. As I as I told you, when I first came to the archives in South Africa, I came and I tried to 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 let the archives speak. And at the Jewish archives, I was very fortunate to to find many many uh, translations of of Jewish items in the press, in the Afrikaner press, of course, in the British press that didn't need to uh, in the English speaking press. That one didn't need to translate, but from the 30s onward. So for me, it was very, very effective because I had this uh, thousands of thousands of, of pages, but I could actually through these pages go uh, and and map the the the, the most dominant uh, events that occupied the discourse. And one that stood up was definitely. Uh, um, uh, the, the the Eichmann trial, uh, and it is not surprising uh, that that it came up. But but I think that what was very interesting in in with respect to to the the reactions of the Eichmann, uh, the Eichmann trial in South Africa was that the Afrikaners were uh, we talked about the collective memory. Uh, the Afrikaners were very very much invested in their own collective memories of suffering. And and in in many of of the, the press items that I uh, collected, I could detect a sense of uh, you know uh, resentment towards the Jews for uh, for for occupying the the the, uh, the 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 arena of suffering, the human suffering arena. Uh, so I think it was quite interesting to see how uh, uh, how how this this transnational event of the kidnapping of Eichmann and the, the, putting him on trial in Israel, which was so symbolic, was on the one hand very very perceived uh, very very critically uh, from uh, individual Afrikaners. Uh, and uh, one of them, which I think is is quite interesting, um, uh, said, and I'll quote: "One is sometimes amazed at the inhabitants of Israel as people who make such a fuss about the violation of their frontiers by Arabs and Egyptians. They sometimes do fantastic things. Of course, referring to Israel's invasion." Uh, of of Argentina's sovereignty by by uh, uh, abducting Eichmann 
uh, and taking him uh, in custody uh, to trial in Israel. So this is very, very interesting, I think, to, to see uh, uh, how, uh, and I, I must say, how colonialists, uh, Afrikaner colonialists who arrived in, in, in the Cape and established colonies hundreds of years before are actually accusing uh, Israel for, for uh, you know, uh, uh, violating uh, the sovereignty of, of another state. Uh, so uh, I think that that it's it's quite interesting to see uh, um, to see how 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 the, those uh, the, how Afrikaners are very very selective. On the the other hand, I end the chapter on Eichmann with a positive note, uh, uh, and and I tell this anecdote of this Afrikaner man who. Who, uh, who turns to uh, the Israeli uh, embassy or a consulate at the time uh, and offering his services as, a, as the hangman to, to, to actually to, to, to kill Eichmann, to actually uh, 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 kill him. And, and I think that this is very, very interesting to see how uh, on the one hand, we see uh, in many, many points of the trial, from the abduction through uh, to, to uh, Eichmann's arrival in Israel, and of course, during the trial itself, one can see mainly critical responses from uh, Afrikaners. Uh, but when, uh, when Eichmann uh, is... Uh, uh, found guilty and sentenced to death in, uh, uh, in prison, uh, one can see this change, gradual change in, in attitude. Um, and I think that, that another uh, observation that I offer in, in the book uh, and throughout the, the book, not only in, in here, uh, in the Eichmann uh, trial uh, analysis is, is is that we need to, to, to look at this history through uh, uh, and, and to take under account uh, also uh, much more global circumstances such as the Cold War. Uh, so apartheid uh, is in South Africa, uh, but this governmental uh, racist uh, regime uh, is operating it's part of or, or, or aligning with the Western part of the Cold War. Uh, communists are the enemy. And South Africa is the last buffer defending the African continent from communism. Okay. And, and, and so we see many of those realities in the, 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 the public discourse and of course in the Afrikaner discourse uh, and, and acquitting uh, the, uh, the Soviets uh, um, uh, as, as unhuman uh, un, uh, uh, and, and actually trying to, to compare between the Soviets and the Nazis Soviets and Eichmann, 
so this is also a very interesting direction that one can see happening in the book. Can you tell us about the Six Million Monument? What, what does it signify? So the Six Million mo Monument uh, is a very unique monument. It's not the first one in South Africa, one should say. Uh, it was established in 1959 uh, after uh, a first monument called Kriya uh, uh, was established by the same uh, 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 sculpture, the, the, the same artist, Hermann Wold. Uh, and the Six Million uh, uh, monument uh, was established in Johannesburg. It was initiated uh, initiated by the 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 club of of uh, Polish Jews in Johannesburg to promote uh, a, a monument that will serve the Jewish uh, community, and it was eventually uh, positioned at the Jewish cemetery in Johannesburg. And this is a very, very classic monument, memorial, uh, uh, a very, uh, uh, one that, that, that you cannot ignore. Even if you are not physically in the cemetery, you cannot miss it because it's very, very huge in its size. Uh, it depicts, uh, uh, you know, this thick bronze fist, uh, very, very, uh, uh, very, very big ones. Uh, and uh, it has many, many uh, uh, Jewish symbol, symbolic um, um, elements uh, uh, that actually indicates the, the desire to uh, uh, to, to perpetuate this uh, memory of the Holocaust and of the victims of the Holocaust in uh, the landscape. So the hands, uh, these the, huge six hands emanate from the ground uh, and uh, the location in this Jewish cemetery, uh, you know, uh, simulates their emergence as graves, like from the graves. Uh, reflecting the the, the verse uh, uh, from uh, the book of Genesis, uh, the voice of the brothers' uh, uh, blood uh, cries uh, unto me from the ground. So this is like, uh, uh, you know, uh, a manifestation of the the tragic events that occurred, that that the, the destruction of 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 the European Jews. But at the same time, it 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 also. Uh, you know, perceives the wording "lo tirzach," uh, uh, "thou shall not kill," uh, and we have uh, the, at the center you can find the, the eternal light uh, forming uh, a, a flame, spelling, of course, "do not forget." So, so this is a very, very interesting uh, monument, I think, because it. It arrives in a very, very early stage for, for a Jewish community that has nothing to do with the Holocaust directly. Uh, so uh, as when the Holocaust uh, was over, when the war was over, uh, one could see uh, many monuments that were established mainly in killing sites. Uh, in places where Jews once lived and then perished altogether. So uh, this was very common in Europe. But 
other, uh, you know, other, uh, uh, in other places, you, you could hardly find any uh, uh, monuments uh, uh, in places that, that are not uh, uh, directly re related to, to the Holocaust. And Israeli, as I said, is an exception here. Uh, um, as we know, Israel, uh, 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 after its establishment, uh, took a very specific role as the defender of the Jewish people and as the representative of the survivors and the victims of the Shoah. Uh, and therefore, you can see uh, many, uh, many monuments, memorials, museums established in Israel from even before Israel was established from 1947. We have Yad Mordechai and we have uh, the Ghetto Fighters House and Yad Vashem and other places. South Africa is unique because, you know, it's a very small community. And, and you can see that while uh, the six mo um, uh, uh, million monument was located in uh, a Jewish cemetery. One could think, okay, so it's it's only a collective effort of the Jewish community. But then, why would it be so central in the public discourse, the national public discourse? So. So as you know, you can see that the 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 the, uh, the unveiling of the monument ceremony was broadcasted directly live uh, and translated to Afrikaans. So it you could see it in Afrikaans and in, in and in English. Uh, you could find inscriptions on the the monument in English, in Afrikaans, in Yiddish, and in Hebrew. Uh, and 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 so it was clear for me that while this was a, a collective effort to remember Jewish suffering during the Holocaust, it was also aimed at the non-Jewish white communities in South Africa. And I think that was very, very interesting, even much more interesting than the fact that actually there is a monument at a place that had nothing to do with the Holocaust. Uh, so I think that this is the most interesting story here that 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 you know they they were using uh, the official language of apartheid, the uh, uh, the monumental tactics of apartheid, uh, in order to speak about their own atrocity and to mediate it to the white minority. What were Archbishop Desmond Tutu's perspectives on the Holocaust? How did his perspective toward the Holocaust change and evolve? So Archbishop Desmond Tutu is a fascinating figure, the late Archbishop, one must say. Uh, and I think that was uh, uh, the hardest part of, the, the challenging part of, the most challenging part of my, my, my research. Because Desmond Tutu was not part of this research. I actually didn't even know if he engaged with the Holocaust as I was writing my PhD, as I was finishing my PhD. But at the time I had this, uh, so I, I, I ordered a lot of materials from the Israeli National Archives. And at the time, I think even today, one couldn't really come to the archive and work because it was under construction. 
And so we had to just uh, order stuff and then to wait a few months uh, for, for the people of the archive to scan it. So what I did, because I had no idea what I will find in the archive, I just, you know, searched for, for keywords. And one of the keywords were Desmond Tutu. I knew that in 1989, he arrived in Israel. And, and I knew vaguely that he uh, visited Yad Vashem. I knew that he was in Yad Vashem in 1999, but 1999 was not part of my periodization. So... I tried to find something about the visit he had 10 years earlier in 1989. So, and then I ran into this file. I didn't know what I will find in it. I ordered it. And a few months later, it arrived in my email. And I must say, I think that the Israeli Arch National Archive did not do a very good job uh, censoring it, <laughs> uh, luckily for me. Uh, and this, file had many, many documents of the governmental, uh, the governmental organization, uh, the, the, um, the foreign ministry of Israel, and many other uh, governmental of uh, offices uh, that engage with preparing Israel to, 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 to this uh, visit, calling him uh, a persona non grata, uh, calling uh, uh, the other, you know, the, the other uh, governmental uh, offices to smuggle him with love, uh, and and to create uh, moments that will provide throughout the visit that will provide Israel with opportunities uh, to uh, to show that uh, Israel is not a racial state. And this was this came uh, as a reaction to uh, a, a report that was written uh, by the, the 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 ambassador of Israel in South Africa uh, at the time, uh, who described uh, described the Archbishop as an anti-Zionist, anti-Israeli, and anti-Semitic persona. So that's the beginning. But I want to go back. Desmond Tutu was uh, an, uh, so he was an Anglican uh, priest. He uh, uh, grew up during the war. Uh, he actually, in one of his uh, many, many autobiographies and books, uh, describes the experiences that he uh, remembered from the war, receiving those uh, troops that came back from the front to South Africa. And he was quite quiet until the late 70s. And in the late 70s, he uh, uh, starts uh, to become a, a very prominent person in the struggle against apartheid. Uh, from uh, the side of the, the church, at the churches, uh, and he becomes so prominent because he creates this analogical lexicon. That this is my phrase, of course, uh, pointing first to similarities between uh, Nazism and apartheid apartheid uh, legislation. 
he was of course not the first, but he was so very prominent and was considered liberal. Uh, and, and, and this analogy uh, over the years stretches into an analogy uh, uh, between apartheid and genocide, well, and the Holocaust, of course, uh, and the, the genocidal part of the Holocaust, claiming claiming that while in the townships, one did not have gas chambers, but children were starving to death, and this was a deliberate uh, practice of the government, and asking, is this not a genocide? Because there were not gas chambers, can we not compare? Can we not speak about similarities? And 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 then this discourse evolves into uh, a, a focus on the suffering, the suffering of the Jews versus the suffering of Black South Africans. Uh, interestingly, uh, after. Um, um, after uh, the first uh, uh, the first Lebanon war uh, and in 1984 when when Desmond Tutu uh, receives the Nobel Prize for his struggle against apartheid one can see that this analogy uh, changes evolves quite quickly from uh, uh, the from apartheid uh, and Nazism through, to uh, the Jewish suffering versus the suffering of blacks in South Africa, towards the suffering of Jews versus the suffering of refugee, Palestinian refuge, refugees. And, and in many, many cases, especially when he speaks speak, uh, with uh, Jewish audiences in South Africa, but mainly outside of South Africa, particularly in the US, you can see how this uh, uh, analogy evolves into an accusation of the Israeli government uh, uh, of, of forget forgetting its own past. How can a, a people that, that experienced the Holocaust uh, uh, create so much suffering for other people? So uh, this is uh, uh, this main evolution of, of his analogy. And I think I, I try to point to the connections from the first analogies that he makes between apartheid and Nazism to uh, Jewish suffering versus uh, Palestinian suffering that eventually in 1989 uh, comes to this climate of, of the Israel apartheid analogy that we know to this day. Um, uh, so, uh, so this is in, in a nutshell, uh, the evolution of, of Desmond Tutu's uh, analogical lexicon. Uh, and, and I feel like in, in the reception of, of the book, uh, you know, many read the introduction and the conclusion uh, of the book. And, and uh, as Desmond Tutu's uh, um, story uh, uh, provides most of my uh, uh, concluding uh, chapter. I think it's interesting to see how, uh, when I discuss the book, I mainly uh, find myself defending Desmond Tutu, claiming that he was not anti-Semitic, and that this analogical lexicon was not an anti-Semitic manifestation, but rather uh, a more theological 
perception of of reality uh, and uh, that the, the the analogies that he echoes and the struggles that he fights for the the the, the anti-colonial struggles if we're talking about the settler colonialism in Israel or or of course apartheid uh, in South Africa um uh, I think that that one can see the echoes of those links that he creates in the Truth and Re Reconciliation Commission that he leads in 1996 in South Africa. What role does Michael Rothberg's research on multidimensional memory play in your research? How does his notion of the implicated subject factor into your study? So we have here two different paradigms that are not, that are of course interconnected and are very prominent in my thinking, very prominent in my study. Uh, I think that, that, that Michael Rothberg's uh, contribution to, uh, 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 to the notion of of or, or or to to analysis of of Holocaust memory in the age of decolonization is very very important, uh, and I feel that my book actually uh, provides one case study of this model that he offers of multidirectional memory uh, as as a model that can create uh, a space not only for competition between collective memories, but also for uh, recognition in suppressed and, and excluded memories uh, through uh, uh, connecting or pointing to similarities to the memory of the Holocaust. So this is one thing. And I think that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, to demonstrate how this multidirectional memory in in when when you you use it uh, as an application uh for the ways in which holocaust memory played a role in the anti-apartheid struggle is fascinating because you know when you see how uh anti-apartheid activists black anti-apartheid activists indian anti-apartheid activists that are not jewish uh, are 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 using Holocaust memory as as an inspiration in their struggle, and as 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 and 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 of course, uh, Michael Rothberg's model aims at uh, including memories of minority groups of groups that 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 their voices were re repressed were not heard. And I think that here, through this model, I got an opportunity to, 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 to provide the world with a, a very interesting case study of a, a minority group, which is actually a majority in South Africa, but they are minority because they are the voiceless, the ones that, uh, that, that are you know, uh, uh, persecuted in South Africa. Uh, so those uh, black communities, those Indian communities, those colored communities that, that that one could not find their voices in archives and to bring those voices to the fore uh, through their engagement in Holocaust memory, but in order to speak about their own suffering and not about the Holocaust, because this is not the issue. The Holocaust is a benchmark 
the Holocaust is a symbol, is a tragic event. And, 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 and to take this event as a vehicle to create space to speak about other atrocities, even if they're not genocide per se, other racist uh, uh, manifestations. And it also brings us to, to, the, to, to, to something that I'm, I, I tend to speak to with my, my uh, students. What is the Holocaust? What is this event? When does it start? Of course, we all know when, when does it end, but when does it start, the Holocaust? Does it start in Kristallnacht? Does it start before in 1933? Does it start in Van Zee? Does it start in Auschwitz? It ended there, and 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 this is you know this is a question that if we we will unpack it, I think it will be much easier to to accept this multidirectional memory model that Rothberg argues for, or even this analogical lexicon that Desmond Tutu speaks about, because you know whenever uh, an activist against apartheid spoke about. Uh, Nazism and about Auschwitz and about the Holocaust as a comparison to the reality in South Africa, the first reaction was, and still is, unfortunately, in many, many cases, well, you cannot compare. You do not, well, in South Africa, you did not have gas chambers, you did not have concentration camps, you did not have ghettos. Well, that's true, but there were, and there still are, townships, and uh, there were racial segregations, there, there was persecution. So I think that, uh, uh, that, that one of the things that inspired me the most uh, in Rothberg's notion or, or, and model of multidirectional memory, that it was, it invited an opportunity to engage with uh, the voices of, of, of the repressed, the one that, that that one cannot find in the archive. And if we'll go to the, 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 the other book, the, the, the later book, the, the book from 2019, The Implicated Subject, so I think that the notion of implications is fascinating. And this brings us back to, to the South African Jewish community uh, uh, because, you know, at the end of my book, I refer to uh, to to Rothberg notions of of implication or or of the implicated subject, uh, referring to South African Jews during apartheid uh, as an implica as implicated subjects, and uh, you know, as Israelis as humans, we are all implicated, and I think that if this book will create or will will urge people to to think about their own implication in the context that they live in. So I, I you know, for me, that would be uh, a success. Uh, and I try to, uh, you know, as I wrote this chapter, the last chapter, uh, I try to, to, uh, to reflect on, on my own implications as an Israeli living in Israel here now uh and 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 yes i think that this is a very complicated exercise to do but a very very important one for humanity so yeah both of those books were very very influential for me what does it mean to you 
to study the history of Holocaust memory in South Africa as an Israeli and as an Israeli woman. Can you comment on your personal positionality as it informs your scholarship? So that's an interesting question. In South Africa, I was and I still am, although I, I do not feel uh, this way, uh, I'm an outsider. I'm not South African. I have no direct connection to South Africa. I have many, many friends, many, many colleagues that I, I, I earned over the years. But, you know, the fact that I'm not South African, that I am an outsider, was actually very helpful for me. Uh, and if I'll, I'll you know, direct it more, I'll say the fact that I was an Israeli Jew, uh, Israeli a Jew, Jewish uh, scholar, uh, I think that was was very, very helpful for me uh, when I first arrived in South Africa and I had no connections, but the Jewish community in Johannesburg, in Pretoria, in Durban, they received me with open arms. And I owe, you know, I owe them uh, this book because they were the first to open the door for me, even before they knew uh, what I'm going to write about. Uh, and, uh, and, and so I think that, that my positioning as an Israeli uh, was effective uh, when it comes to my field work in South Africa, but it was challenging, as I said, as I said earlier, because as an Israeli scholar who wrote on the Israeli society, I felt very, very challenged. I felt like I, I cannot engage, or uh, as a, I'll try to say it uh, differently, I, I cannot really combine properly my activism with my research. And at the time when I wrote my master's and I, I focused on, on Holocaust memory and the struggle of African asylum seekers, I, I was also an activist. Uh, and I tried to, to, I went to demonstrations. I, I was in contact with many African asylum seekers in Israel, in Tel Aviv, in Arad, in other places. And, and, and it, for me, it was too close. Uh, it was too much to to uh, to 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 engage with it actively and and to write on it, uh, and South Africa provided me with an opportunity to go, to go to somewhere else, to go to 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 another very very complex reality, uh, which it still is politically very very complex. It's not you know it's not that apartheid was over. Uh, the truth and reconciliation uh, happened and everything is pink and everyone are happy. No. Uh, and, and that's really, 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 really challenging. And one thing that I actually uh, was exposed to in South Africa that I was not exposed to anywhere before was how prominent the Israel apartheid analogy is in South Africa and uh, how strong the BDS is in South Africa. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, the, there was a time where I subletted uh, an apartment in, in Cape Town uh, with a Jewish uh, radical activist that I, I really, really adore. She's a very 
close friend, uh, but we, we didn't know each other. And uh, I, I came to her house and I rented this, this very small room. And uh, the first night they provided me with dinner. We sat together uh, with her and her, her daughter. She was a teenager. And she told me about her parents who lived in District 6, this, this very unique neighborhood in Cape Town that was mixed uh, uh, during the apartheid years, uh, 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 Indians and Jews and um, and uh, Afrikaners and uh, and other uh, lived together in the same uh, in the same uh, uh, place in the same neighborhood until the group group areas act uh, uh, of the apartheid regime ordered to uh, to destroy the neighborhood and to evict all of the non-white uh, residents uh, to townships to to black resorts so uh, and she told me about her experiences as a, as a child remembering how her parents who were Jews who were communists uh, used to hide activists in their house and then she said you know we must tell you that we are not Zionists and it came out of the blue I was like okay and then as they said, well, we, we really, we didn't want to offend you, but we, we took all the slogans out of the fridge. Uh, and, I, and so I told them, well, you can put it all back. Everything is fine. We can agree. We can disagree. Uh, and, and we can speak about it. And, and I think that if we both define Zionism together, we will agree uh, uh, more than disagree. Uh, so I think that it, this was a very, very fascinating experience for me. Uh, at the same at the same time in Pretoria, I uh, I was uh, hosted by the rabbi, the ultra orthodox rabbi, which was also very different from what I knew. Mm -hmm. Even as an Israeli, I'm completely secular. Never had a religious Shabbat before, uh, not to say an ultra orthodox religious Shabbat. So uh, this was also quite an experience, uh, actually a mirror experience to the Cape Town one. Uh, wow. So, you know, and I, I think that luckily for me, I'm, I'm a very open person. Uh, and and uh, I, I really like to engage with people, even if they're not agreeing with me. Uh, I think if, if we will all agree all the time, it will be boring. So uh, I think that 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 was uh, one advantage for me, um, but still, uh, you know, taking your your question seriously, uh, as an Israeli scholar, uh, engaging with the materials uh, that are related to 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 the history of apartheid and the anti-apartheid movement and the Jewish community in South Africa made me reflect on my own implications and on my own positioning as an Israeli in Israel uh, uh, as an activist versus as a researcher, uh, what I'm doing, what I'm not doing enough. Uh, and, and it made me think a lot, especially engaging uh, with the anti-apartheid struggle, the anti-apartheid movement. I was very fortunate to, to, to be a fellow, a research fellow during my PhD in this uh, European Council 
uh, uh, project, ERC project of Professor Liz Bethlehem, focusing on cultural uh, formations of the anti-apartheid struggle outside of South Africa. And this, uh, this group of researchers focusing on, on those issues uh, made me think a lot about the opportunity that we missed as Israelis when speaking about uh, our own context, our, our own uh, uh, reality uh, of, of, of the Israeli occupation uh, uh, and the, the Israeli-Palestinian uh, 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 conflict. And I think that it made me, it made me, you know, uh, uh, think about about the opportunities that we missed and the opportunity that the opportunities that we still have uh, in 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 creating our realities for us, for the Palestinians, for for for, for you know, for everyone that lives here in this uh, very complicated region. So. Uh, of course, uh, it, there is much more to say about about this, but but in a nutshell, I think that uh, you know uh, that working as an Israeli uh, in the field of South Africa, focusing on the apartheid South Africa, made me think a lot about, about the similarities, the differences, and what can we do, and what can we learn from the South African experience, uh, and 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 borrow bring to, to our own reality. And that's after saying that I acknowledge the fact that South Africa is not a paradise today after apartheid was over. There are still a lot of struggles, but it's not apartheid. So, yeah. Can you say a bit more about the time you personally spent in South Africa? What did you learn from your time there? How did you personally evolve? How did it contextualize your study and contextualize your identity? How long were you there? Who did you meet? What aspects of South Africa made an impression on you? So I spent a lot of time in South Africa. My first visit was in February 2014 for a month and a half. And then I spent every year uh, from 2014 to uh, to COVID, to 2020, to 20, yeah, January 2020 was the last time doing my research, of course. Uh, uh, so, and and each time, at least one month. And the only time that I came for a short period was when I, uh, in, after Ahmed Katwara passed away, uh, and, and I received this open invitation to visit his archives, I went for three days. So I spent more time at the airplane than at the archives, uh, but it was worth it. Uh, and I met many, many people. So as I said, when I first arrived in South Africa, I had no funding for my research, for my travel. So I turned to the South African Zionist Federation for, uh, for I, I turned to the, the branch of the, uh, the, the Zionist Federation in Israel. And they said, well, we cannot help you with money but we would love to help you with accommodation. And they, as I said, hooked me out with, with many, many very, very kind people from the Jewish community. Among them, Hillary and Bertie Lobner that I, I, I mentioned earlier, 
Bertie, they received the Bertie Labner Award in 2012, and then in 2014, they agreed to agreed to host me in their house in Johannesburg, and I, I was there for uh, for a lot of time, and I came back uh, several times and stayed with them. Uh, Bertie unfortunately passed away in 2016, in, in April 2016, but I stayed in touch with Hillary, and they actually became my family in South Africa. And, and of course, there was Rabbi Fox from Pretoria and his family that were very generous, uh, gener generous and, and received me with open arms. Uh, and, and, and in Durban, um, uh, there was uh, uh, also um, uh, Susan Edmonds uh, that also uh, unfortunately passed away already that hosted me in her house. So th the Jewish community was very welcoming. The first person that I met when I arrived in South Africa was Tali Nates, the director of the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Center that was at a time under construction. It was not even open yet. So it was like a center, a museum without a physical museum. They went to, to schools in the region uh, and uh, taught uh, about the Holocaust learners and also teachers. And she was the first uh, person that I met. I remember meeting her at the, the, the skeleton of the, of the building. And uh, she actually connected me to historians, to scholars, to activists, to, to everyone she knew, which was very, very uh, effective. And, and, and first, when I arrived in South Africa, uh, so as I said, I had no connection to South Africa, so I had to learn to, and I wanted to, to experience, to see. So I took a lot of private uh, tours to Suero, to, uh, uh, of course, the, to the Apartheid Museum, to the Lilisley Farm, uh, to, I went to the Constitution Hill, which was the 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 white prisoners of apartheid uh, prison, and after apartheid, it was uh, it became uh, the Supreme Court, uh, which was very symbolic. Uh, so so I I try to learn as much as I can about the local history, uh, and not only the local Jewish history, but the local history of South Africa. Uh, I, I was received with open arms by librarians, by archivists, by uh, uh, really I'm speechless in in this in this way because I was very it was very very helpful and I couldn't do this research without those connections. Um, so so definitely the the Cape Town Holocaust Center that became afterwards the Holocaust and Genocide Center, and the Durban Holocaust Center. The Kaplan Center, center at, at uh, uh, the University of Cape Town, it was so very helpful. The, the, it's the Center for Jewish Studies. And uh, I worked a lot of time at the, the national libraries in Cape Town and in Durban, uh, sorry, in Pretoria. So I spent a lot of time uh, um, all in all in South Africa. And I felt that I was always received with open arms. Um, and I'm not sure if it was because I, I was an outsider, but everyone were very, very welcoming and very, very supportive. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, can you tell us about the work that you have done since completing this book? What are you working on? 
Now, can you illuminate us regarding where your time and attention have gone? Sure. So when I first came to South Africa, let's start with the beginning and then I'll, I'll, I'll go to the end. Uh, so I, I, when I, I told you I turned to, to the Zionist Federation and the, the guy that I spoke to at the Zionist Federation, it was 2014, and he said, you know, your research sounds very interesting, but there is another thing that is very interesting and you may be interested in it. There was this group of refugees that were deported to Mauritius in the Indian Ocean during the war. And the South African community was very much invested in this in this issue because this was the closest thing to the Holocaust that they had, and they really helped those refugees. Maybe you should write about this uh, this episode. And and then I I got intrigued and very ang angry because you know I felt well I'm an Israeli historian focusing on Holocaust history. How come I never heard about this story before? And then I arrived in the Wuchlin archive, the archive of the South African Jewish Board of Deputies in Johannesburg, and I saw a box uh, titled Mauritius. And I said, okay. I opened those, this box and I found a lot of uh, correspondence material, documents uh, from the war years. Uh, uh, corresponding between the refugees and the Jewish community, uh, between the Jewish community and the colonial authorities in Mauritius, and it was all too much. And then I thought to myself, okay, you know, uh, it it deserves more than one paragraph in my research. It deserves a separate research, this story. And then I decided that I'll wait patiently until I finish my PhD and start investigating more about this subject. And I was patient. And in September, 2018, I submitted my PhD. And the first step was to go to the Ghetto Fighters House archive where most of the materials uh, of the uh, Mauritian exiles was donated by the families in 2008. So this is a very interesting story of, of, of refugees from Czechoslovakia, from uh, Poland, from Germany, from Danzig, and from Vienna, who uh, 1,581 refugees who escaped Nazi-controlled Europe, they arrived in Haifa, in Israel, uh, in December 1940, and then were deported by the British authorities uh, to Mauritius in the Indian Ocean, and they were held there then, there, sorry, in a prison that was con uh, converted into a camp, separating between the women and children and the men for five years, for the, the entire duration of the war. Uh, and, and, and so, so I think that this was, and still is, uh, because I'm still writing this book, uh, uh, this is my uh, my current or or the, the project that I I worked on uh, after my PhD. Uh, I did extensive work on on arch archives. This is a very transnational uh, history. So I I spent one year at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum working on this project and a month in Dachau 
and of course, of course, in Munich and, and working in the Dachau archive because many of, of the men, of the Viennese men who were deported to Mauritius were deported to Dachau before. Uh, so this was very, very interesting for me. And I spent a lot of time in Mauritius, uh, not as much as I wanted to because COVID happened, <clears throat> but I, I was there twice and I'm hoping to go back again in September. But what was interesting with this project that when I started working on it, um, I, I, I didn't know anyone that was there, that, that was one of the ex-detainees. And, and I can tell you now, four years after starting to work on this uh, episode in, in Jewish history, that I have, have a list of more than 100 people who either was, were born on the camp or deported as children, or, or of course, second and third generation from all over the world. Mm -hmm. And we actually were able to create a community. Uh, and every year we meet on Zoom uh, uh, and, and we have a commemoration. We just had it last week, the, the annual commemoration of the deportation to Mauritius. Uh, and and we are, I am working on, on those events together with the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Center and with the uh, Boba Sandwich Detainees Memorial in Mauritius and with the Ghetto Fighters House uh, in Israel. Uh, so so it's been an emotional trip for me because it's a journey, um, I must say, because because I I I think there there is not not a day that goes by without a person calling me or writing to me uh, that he heard about my research and that his parents were deported to Mauritius, his grandparents, or and and, and there is a family connection. Uh, and it's all over the world. So I'm trying to to you know to put to to connect the dots of this transnational journey that ends up in the Indian Ocean. Uh, so this is the the current project. I'm currently uh, I finished the field work and I'm working working on the book. Um, and and the future hopefully would be uh, would invite me to to go back to South Africa to the South African Jewish community that I'm very, very interested in and to, to engage with, with something that I did not touch upon in my book, which is the, uh, the place of Sephardic Jews and their own memories of the Holocaust in South African society. So there is a community of uh, Jews from Rhodes, from uh, Greece, uh, so Greek Jews that experienced the Holocaust. They... Uh, um, arrived in South Africa, South Africa after the war, uh, settled there, uh, and they're very much excluded from uh, this official Holocaust memory that I describe in my book. And I'm very interested in, in investigating more about this community. As we end our dialogue today, I would like to thank you from the bottom of my heart for your generous and magnanimous and thoughtful answers for your eloquent responses and for everything you shared in dialogue today and for all the effort, time and sacrifice that went into this marvelous masterpiece of a book. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. It was my honor and my blessing. I really, really gained tremendously and I believe our listeners as well. I hope so. 
to our listeners, I am your host today on the New Books Network, Ari Barbalat. I have been in dialogue with Roni Mikel Ariely. We have been discussing her new book, Remembering the Holocaust in a Racial State, Holocaust Memory in South Africa from Apartheid to Democracy, 1948 to 1944, published in Berlin by De Reuter, 2022. Roni is academic director of the Oral History Division in the Institute of Contemporary Jewry at Hebrew University of Jerusalem. She is also a lecturer and research fellow at the Rub Center for Holocaust Studies at Ben-Gurion University of the Negev. This book is a contribution to the New Books in Jewish Studies channel, as well as the New Books in African Studies channel. Thank you.